On May 8, 2010, Saturday Night Live welcomed its oldest guest host ever. At age 88, Betty White was hosting SNL for the first time, the result of a social media campaign that blossomed on Facebook. campaign to get me to host Saturday Night Live, I didn't know what Facebook was. <laughs> and now that I do know what it is, I have to say, it sounds like a huge waste of time. <laughs> it was a notable achievement, but for Betty White, it was only the tip of the iceberg, the cherry on top of the sundae, the crumbled Doritos on top of the cottage cheese. I like crumbled Doritos on top of cottage cheese. Come at me. In a career that began with bit parts on radio shows in the 1930s, Betty White has weathered stereotyping, sexism, and typecasting to become a beloved comic actress and the female entertainer with the longest television career in history. She was nominated for the very first Best Actress Emmy Award in 1951, and 60 years later, in 2011, she got another nomination. She's won eight Emmy Awards, three American Comedy Awards, three Screen Actors Guild Awards, a Grammy Award, and a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. She is, in short, unsinkable. I'm starting to think that maybe we should do a potluck thing. Potluck, potluck. The potluck is going really great. A potluck. Seriously. Seriously. This is the Incredible Inman's Pop Culture Potluck. Thanks for coming to the Potluck. I'm David Inman. Her full name is Betty Marion White Ludden. Not Elizabeth, just Betty. In January 1922, she was born in a suburb of Chicago, but within a few years, the family moved to Los Angeles. Betty's father worked for a lighting company, but during the Great Depression, he would also repair radios as a way of helping make ends meet. His customers couldn't always pay in cash, so sometimes they bartered with pets, which meant that Betty grew up in a house full of dogs and cats an experience that started her lifelong love of animals. Betty also helped the family's finances by performing on radio shows. In 1930, at age eight, she appeared on a show called Empire Builders as a sick child. Oh, how are you today, Anne? I'm a lot better, thank you. Tell me about yourself. Uh, what's your name? Beatrice Ann Hylam, and I like my name. Mm -hmm. That's a nice name. How long have you been in the hospital, Anne? All my life. What? All your life in a hospital? Where are your parents? They're dead. They were both killed when I was hurt a long time ago, when I was only two years old. And how old are you now? Ten. Ten. Have you no other home, no relatives? I have Aunt Mary. Well, who is Aunt Mary? She is my great aunt. But I just call her Aunt Mary. She owns this hospital. You don't mean Mary Woodruff, the superintendent? Yes. And she is your aunt, eh? No, she is my great aunt. I just call her aunt. Oh, oh I see. Uh... Betty made her TV debut in 1939, just after graduating from Beverly Hills High School. 
She and a friend sang songs on an experimental Los Angeles TV station. Stage work followed, and during World War II, Betty was a member of the American Women's Army Volunteer Services, driving trucks filled with supplies to gun emplacements that had been set up in the hills above Hollywood and in Santa Monica. There were also romances, and after the war, there were two marriages that ended almost as quickly as they began. Betty began getting work on network radio shows. Her first big gig was saying the word parquet in a commercial on The Great Gildersleeve, a popular sitcom at the time. She was certain she was going to blow it on the air and say parfait, but she didn't. And more doors began to open. Here she is on a 1949 episode of the radio show, This Is Your FBI. Tonight's file continues at the local FBI field office. Andy, we got a tough break. What's that, Jim? We were right in our theory that the colonel might be staying at a private club. He was at the Hudson Club, but he checked out a little while before I got there. Mm, that is tough. Any lead on where he went? Well, I got a list of the numbers the colonel called while he was staying at the club. The switchboard is checking the one that he called the most often. That might help. Yeah, but that's all I got. How about his room? No, it had just been clean. Oh. I checked at the transportation desk at the club, but he didn't buy any tickets from them. Maybe he's still in town. Could be, Andy, but I doubt it. Have you sent flyers to the railroad station? Yeah, and to the airport, the bus station, and car rental agencies. The only other thing we know is that he visited someone here in town. Oh? He asked at the club one day for directions to Emory Street. Oh, excuse me. Special Agent Taylor. This is Miss Hopkins at the switchboard, Mr. Taylor. Oh, yes, Miss Hopkins. That number you gave me doesn't answer. Have you found out where it is? Yes, sir. The phone number is listed for an apartment at 21 Emory Street. Shall I keep trying it? No. Thank you, Miss Hopkins. Yes, sir. Come on, Eddie. Where are we going? To 21 Emory Street and see if we can locate the honeymooners. But by this point, there was something new on the career horizon. Television. Betty could sing, and she was attractive. And she was soon a regular on a local TV game show called Grab Your Phone. The MC would ask a question... Viewers would call in the answer, and Betty was one of a panel of young women who would answer the phones. She was placed at the end of the panel, right next to the MC, which led to a lot of ad-libbing between the two of them. At least one person saw Grab Your Phone and was impressed by Betty White. His name was Al Jarvis, and he was the top disc jockey in L.A. He was coming to local TV in a daytime show called Hollywood on Television, and he needed a sidekick. Betty had demonstrated that she could talk on television about practically anything, and Jarvis needed help. The show ran, get this, five hours every day. In those early days of TV, network schedules were sparse, and in Los Angeles, as in many other cities, locally produced programming had to fill large gaps of time. Hollywood on television went on the air in late 1949, and the fact that it aired in the daytime meant that competition in those days before game shows and soap operas was practically non-existent. The set consisted of Jarvis, Betty, and a fish tank that got lots of screen time. But for the first time in her career, Betty White was steadily working honing her skills at ad-libbing and speaking in a relaxed, unflappable manner on the air. And viewers liked her. When Al Jarvis left the show in 1952, Betty became the sole host. By that time, Hollywood on television had expanded. It was on five and a half hours a day, six days a week. 
That's 33 hours of live TV, practically an entire work week all in front of a camera. Betty wasn't a national celebrity, but she was TV royalty in the Los Angeles area. And when the Emmy Award category of Best Actress was introduced in 1951, she was the only nominee working on the West Coast. The other actresses, including Imogene Coca, Helen Hayes, and Gertrude Berg, were all working in TV that originated in New York City. Hollywood on television went off the air in 1953, but Betty White didn't miss a trick. She went into the film TV business with two partners. One was Don Federson, the manager of the station that had carried Hollywood on television, and the other was a writer named George Tibbles. They formed a company called Bandy Productions, named after Betty's Pekingese, Bandit. One of the occasional features of Hollywood on television was a running sketch where Betty would play a young housewife named Elizabeth, and so it seemed to be a natural progression that Bandy Productions would go into business with a series called Life with Elizabeth. It was a half-hour domestic sitcom, and it was very much a product of its time. Oh, brother, here we go again. Calvin. Wait a minute. Turn off the teeth, Elizabeth. Put your jaw back in place. Elizabeth. Okay. Now, you're showing all the symptoms of one of your tricks. I'm in no mood for tricks. You tell me exactly what's on your mind and nothing else. I was just thinking that it'd be... Wait a minute. No, well, I was just thinking. Just say, I want a new hat, or I want to paint the house, or I want a hundred dollars. How did you guess? <laughs> Which one? All of them. <laughs> Del Moore played Betty's husband, and each episode was introduced by announcer Jack Nars. Life with Elizabeth was one of the first syndicated shows, and it ran from 1952 to 1955. Betty won a regional Los Angeles Emmy Award for her work in 1952. And she was more than the star, she was one of the show's producers and owners. By 1954, network TV shows were routinely originating from Los Angeles as well as New York City, and NBC approached Betty to host a daily afternoon talk show. Because of numerous changes in the show's time slot, it barely lasted out the year, but by then another opportunity came up, hosting the Tournament of Roses Parade each New Year's Day, a job she held from 1955 to 1975. And Betty was also making a name for herself as a commercial spokeswoman. And now, for Richard Hudnut Fashion Quick, Betty White. Hello. Here's a happy note for all you smart girls who use home permanence. All smart girls say no, 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 no shampooing, no mixing, no odor. That's right. Thanks to Richard Hudnut's new home permanent, Fashion Quick, there's no more shampooing before or after waving, no more mixing or measuring neutralizers, and no more awful perm odor. The reason is In 1957, Betty returned to a sitcom, again with Don Federson and George Tibbles. The show was called Date with the Angels, and it was a married couple sitcom along the lines of Life with Elizabeth. It ran on ABC one season from 1957 to 58, and for its last few episodes, the show turned into a variety show on which Betty sang, which she'd done for years on Hollywood on television. 
Despite her skills at acting and singing, Betty White would spend most of the 1960s as a personality more than as a performer. It was the heyday of the game show, both on daytime TV and in prime time, and Betty White was made for the format the way Doritos were made for cottage cheese. In 1961, as a guest on Password, Betty caught the interest of the show's host, Alan Ludden. Betty had been single for 12 years and wasn't interested in getting involved with anyone, but Alan Ludden was persistent. He pursued Betty for two years. When they finally married in 1963, they celebrated in what, for them, seemed an appropriate way. They were mystery guests on the game show, What's My Line? Once the panelists guessed their identity, the newlyweds bantered with the show's host, John Daly, and panelist Arlene Francis, and Betty demonstrated the kind of sly humor that she couldn't really show off in a commercial. But I'm anyway, we all, we all, with all our hearts, wish you great happiness and a wonderful world in the future. Amen. I've been reading a, reading a good deal about our two chums, and, and you're going to both do something together this summer, anyway, aren't you? <laughs> yes. We're going to do bring it to them. <laughs> As the decade progressed, Betty White became more and more pigeonholed on TV. Her acting days seemed to be long gone. Now fast forward to the mid-1970s. Changes were happening on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. Mary's two best women friends on the show had developed into such strong characters that they were being given their own sitcoms. The plan was to spin off Valerie Harper's character into Rhoda, in 1974, and Cloris Leachman's character into Phyllis in 1975. The show's writers began testing new female characters, and the first new addition was Georgia Engel as Georgette, introduced as one of Rhoda's fellow window dressers at Hempel's department store. Engel was in Mary Tyler Moore's dance class, and on the show, she did a one-time shot as a lovably ditzy guest at a party. You know, I'm so sorry Rhoda's leaving Hempel. I've been going crazy worrying about it. <laughs> See, I'm the other window dresser there. There are six windows, so now instead of decorating three, I'll have to do six. <laughs> Be hard to dress six, huh? Oh, yes. I'm afraid I'd run out of things to say. Audience reaction to the character was so strong that Engel was added to the cast as the girlfriend of egotistical news anchor Ted Baxter. Then, in the first episode of the show's fourth season, another new female character was introduced. Sue Ann Nivens the host of the Happy Homemaker TV show at the station where most of the cast worked. Here's Mary Tyler Moore. Well, Betty was added after Valerie went on to do her own show, and um, they felt they needed another woman on the show, and they wrote a character who was described as being uh, as, uh, as sweet as Betty White, but as vicious as a barracuda. And um, Betty and her husband, Alan Ludden, and Grant and I were good friends. 
And I said to them after hearing mumblings about, well, we're auditioning and we haven't quite found this character yet, I said, well, why don't you actually interview Betty White? And one of them, I don't, I don't want to saddle either one of them with, <laughs> but they said, he said, but what if she's no good? And I said, well, if she's no good, don't hire her. And they said, well, won't, won't that put you in an awkward position? I said, no, it won't. I, everybody would rather be asked and not be invited back than to not be asked at all. So the fourth season, early in the fourth season, I got a call one day, uh, would I, could I do the next week's Mary Tyler Moore show? I called Mary right after they called me. I said, guess who's doing your show next week? She said, I said, me. She said, oh, no, I don't have any input in the show. I don't say anything, but I can veto that. That's the way we go. It was supposed to be a one-time shot. It went on to be a continuing character. And we figured there was no way you could ever accept this character on a regular basis. So they ne it never occurred to them that they would have her back. But she was so good, so great, so inventive that you couldn't not have her back on. And uh, she became everyone's delicious pixie. She represented all the little evil corners and dark places that we have inside us. And they cheered her on. So Betty White was cast as Sue Ann Nivens. It seems routine today, but it was really kind of revolutionary at the time. To a regular TV viewer in 1973, Betty White symbolized commercials, game shows, the Tournament of Roses parade. Playing comedy was not one of those things, and certainly not playing comedy well. But White knocked it out of the park and ignited a new phase in her career in the process. Here's a scene from her first episode where Sue Ann Nivens seduces Lars, the never-seen husband of Mary's friend Phyllis Lindstrom, played by Cloris Leachman. How nice is you? Don't you look pretty? Oh, well, thank you. Uh, you remember Phyllis Lindstrom? Oh, yes, from your party. Nice to see you again. I'll come right to the point. I'm here to talk about you, and Mary's here to see to it that I don't rip your face off. Phyllis! Mary! Mary! Ten minutes ago, an armor truck was held up for $200,000. You want me to get a film crew out there? We don't have to. DeFalco! DeFalco! Oh, I said it would work, and it worked! Oh, <laughs> Mr. Graham. What? What's the matter? I have a chocolate souffle in the oven. One slight tremor, and it's ruined. Oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, um, the on his way in right now with the film. Come on, we got a lot of work to do if we want to be ready for tonight's show. Mary! Coming! Mary! Okay, Phyllis, I'll be back just as soon as I can. I promise. Why don't we go into my living room? I'm sure we'll be much more comfy in here. <laughs> now, what is it you wanted to talk to me about? I'm here to talk about you and Lars. Oh. Shall I tell you the, the sort of relationship Lars and I have? Is, does this work? Oh, please. I shall be very happy to tell you exactly, after 17 years of marriage, the sort of relationship that Lars and I have. Is Dr. Lindstrom in? Mrs. Lindstrom? I see. Thank you. He is with a patient. He will call me back first chance he gets. 
So now you see, that is the sort of relationship Lars and I <laughs> I'll be right back. After this brief look at my chocolate souffle. <laughs> I think what we have to talk about is more important than your chocolate souffle. I'm sorry, but this is a very critical time. Well, I'm sorry. This is a very critical time for me, too. <laughs> oh, my poor baby. <laughs> well, there was no need for violence. Uh, but why in the West? Sitting and talking is one thing, but why you should deliberately destroy an innocent souffle that never did you any harm? <laughs> one moment of harm, that's beyond me. I think you've gone too far. You're bananas, you know that? <laughs> I'm going to try to forgive you for the souffle. I realize how difficult it must be for you losing a wonderful man like Lars. Did you know that Lars has a neurotic fear of swallowing hair? <laughs> Did you know that Lars gets car sick if he drives over 30 miles an hour? <laughs> it's true. We missed the first act of Man of La Mancha, West Side Story, and The Sound of Music. Oh, not The Sound of Music. <laughs> that is Lars, and that is the man you want. I'm sorry, but nothing you've said could ever make me change my mind about Lars. We're ready for rehearsal, Sue Ann. Excuse me. I have a show to do. <laughs> Phyllis. Mary. She won't let him go. Mary, please, talk to her. Oh, lovely, Billy. I see you found the third camera. Okay, hold it. Uh, Sue Ann, listen to me, because I've got to be in a screening room in 45 seconds. Ted already knows about this thing with you and Lars. You know what a big mouth Ted has. And what Ted doesn't tell, I will tell. And pretty soon, it's going to be all over the station. And they're not going to think that that's a terrific image for the happy homemaker. So you see, it comes down to a choice. Either Lars or your show. I've got to go. I will see you later. <laughs> Sue Ann was also designed as a one-shot role, but Betty became a regular that season. She won Emmy Awards for her work on the show in 1975 and 76, and the show came to an end after seven seasons in 1977. Here's Betty. It was Mary's decision. Mary wanted to dance. She really wanted to dance more than anything. She, we'd all break for lunch, and Mary would get the mirrors in and her dance company, and, and she'd dance all the whole lunch break. And she wanted to put another show together that was a musical show, which she did. And she had a wonderful cast. She had Michael Keaton and Swoosie Kurtz and people of that caliber. Unfortunately, the show didn't, the, the, the audience just wasn't ready for that change from Mary Richards. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was, however, it was not an easy end of the show. The last year, the seventh season, we did the first show, and Mary came in and she said, you know, this is the first day of rehearsal of the first week of the last year. Mm -hmm. Well, that went on for mm -hmm. all year long. To by the time we got to the last week, we were basket cases, all of us. We, just, we stayed in a, Vince Gardenia was our guest uh, star that week, and he said he didn't know what to do, because he said we all were, we'd move together, and we, we wouldn't leave each other alone, and we, we'd go to lunch together, and he'd say, he didn't know what to talk about or what to say, because we were all just devastated. But finally, they uh, wrote the, the last 
the writers couldn't just couldn't write the last scene. They just mm. didn't do it till Wednesday. We would see the script on Monday, you know, for the whole script. But the last scene was missing until mm. Wednesday. And they brought it down, and we read through it, and we blocked it, and then walked away from it. We didn't go back to it mm. till show day Friday. And we did uh, dress rehearsal, and we're a mess, and all had to be remade up. And then we got to the show that night and just went to pieces. So did the audience. Then we did pickups afterwards where you go back and fix a scene here or there. We cried through pickups. <laughs> I still have never seen that last episode. By the time Ed Asner gets to uh, I Treasure You People, I mean, from then on, it's underwater. No matter how many times I see it, it just, uh, it, was a, it was a classic. And they ended it, the writers did such a beautiful job of ending it. Mary just closing the door, looking back in for the last look. Virtually all of the cast of The Mary Tyler Moore Show found work on network TV almost immediately. Ed Asner's character was spun off into Lou Grant. Gavin McLeod jumped over to ABC and The Love Boat. Ted Knight got his own short-lived sitcom, The Ted Knight Show, and then ended up in another, more successful sitcom, Too Close for Comfort. The Betty White Show, the fourth show with that title, premiered on CBS in the fall of 1977. Georgia Engel was also a regular on the show, and several writers from the Mary Tyler Moore Show worked on the concept and the pilot, including David Lloyd, who had written several Sue Ann episodes. Betty played Joyce Whitman, a middle-aged actress whose career suddenly had a resurgence when she got the part of a self-assured policewoman on a hit TV show. The idea was to poke gentle fun at the NBC series Police Woman with Angie Dickinson, but the scripts were iffy, and perhaps most importantly, Joyce Whitman was not Sue Ann Nivens. The Betty White Show ended up being one of the season's first casualties. Only 14 episodes were made. It was produced by MTM, of course, and when CBS dropped the show, Grant Tinker, the head of MTM Productions, and a longtime friend came by Betty's house to tell her personally. But the show's failure really wasn't that big a deal because Betty White was still hot. She did all kinds of guest shots on other shows and in TV movies, including occasional appearances on The Carol Burnett Show as Ellen, the snobby sister of Eunice, played by Burnett, on the sketches dealing with the family. Carol Burnett was another longtime friend, a relationship that began when she was a frequent panelist on Password. Betty played the same role when the sketches were revived as an NBC sitcom called Mama's Family. And she also kept up with game show appearances, often with husband Alan Ludden. Here they are on Tattletales in the mid-1970s. Now, I gotta tell you, gang, I could tell you 15 stories connected with an animal about this wife I'm married to, this lady I'm married to. <laughs> but I'll pick the one. At one point in our lives, we lived in Westchester. And we used to go riding over the Sleepy Hollow Country Club. And driving back, we would go by the Rockefeller uh, farm, and there were black Angus cattle. And Betty, the second time we drove by, said, and I thought she was kidding, she said, you never let me talk to these cattle. So the third time we were by, she said, you still never let me talk to these cattle. Uh -huh. 
Finally, I stopped the car, and she walked up to the fence, and I promise you, there were no black Angus cattle at that fence. But she started talking to one about 50 feet away. In about 10 minutes, she had 200 black Angus cattle lined up at that fence, and she was talking to all of them. I promise it's a true story. Betty White and Alan Ludden even co-starred in stage productions together and on an episode of The Love Boat. But in late 1980, Ludden was hospitalized with stomach cancer. He decided against radiation or chemotherapy, and on June 9, 1981, he died at age 63, five days short of their wedding anniversary. The unsinkable Betty White kept working, and in 1983, she hosted a game show for the first time. It was called Just Men, and it was on NBC. It ran just 13 weeks before it was canceled by the head of the network, Betty's dear friend Grant Tinker. The ironic thing is that Betty won an Emmy Award for it, and the show ran just long enough for Betty to be Emmy nominated the next year as well. Around this same time, the next chapter in Betty White's TV career was taking shape in the form of a visit that comedy writer Susan Harris made to her elderly mother in Miami Beach. Her mom's friends and her active social life inspired Harris to create a new series. Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Your heart is true. You're a pal and a confidant. And if you threw a The Golden Girls brought together three actresses already familiar to TV audiences. Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and B. Arthur. The creator of the show, Susan Harris, had written scripts for Arthur's previous series, Maud, including the controversial episode where Maud has an abortion. You can hear more about that in the podcast we did about the subject. The original plan for the Golden Girls was for McClanahan to play the naive Rose and for Betty to play the Randy Blanche. But during rehearsal for the first episode, director Jay Sandrich, who directed many episodes of The Mary Tyler Moore Show, suggested that the women switch roles. And she found this poor, scrawny, helpless little chihuahua puppy on the street. And she brought it home to St. Olaf with her, and she nursed it back to health. She loved it. She, she took it to bed with her. She taught it to fetch. She'd throw a ball and he'd bring it back, and she'd throw a ball and he'd bring it back. Well, I guess I don't have to tell you, that's pretty much what fetch is. How much longer are we going to circle the airport roads? You want to bring this baby in? Well, when she took the puppy to get his shots, the vet told her the bad news. He said, Mary Jane, this is no chihuahua, this is a rat. The Golden Girls was an immediate hit. And, like the Mary Tyler Moore Show, it's one of those sitcoms that's universally considered a classic. At the end of the first season, all four cast members were nominated for Emmy Awards. In fact, all four would be nominated each year for the next five years. But that first year, Betty won.
I tell you, we've been so keyed up and so geared up all day, all week, because just getting down into the finals and being in a place like this with all the people that are in this room, that, that was... That was the thing, to be with Shelley and, and Felicia, to say nothing of our girls. But to get to this point, you can't narrow it down any more than three. I mean, there ain't no way. I am the lucky one who gets to come up and pick up this beautiful golden girl. But Estelle and Rue and B and I all thank you. We're a match set. You can't split us up. We want to thank the network for taking a chance on four old bro uh, ladies. <laughs> and I want to thank, of course, Paul Witt and that wonderful Susan Harris and Tony Thomas. And I'm not going to go down the list of names because if I miss anybody, it will break my heart. It's just the happiest experience and the most wonderful people it's ever been my privilege to be with. Thank you. The Golden Girls ran for seven seasons on NBC, and then, minus B. Arthur and retitled The Golden Palace, ran for a season on CBS. And Betty White still wasn't finished. She did a short-lived sitcom with Bob Newhart and another with Marie Osmond. Then came Hot in Cleveland, a sitcom on TV Land, where she played the Estelle Getty role to a trio of other actresses, Valerie Bertinelli, Wendy Malick and Jane Leaves. And she was Emmy nominated for that too, of course. She was also Emmy nominated for a practical joke show on NBC called Betty White's Off Their Rockers. And in addition to her performing work, there is also Betty's colossal commitment to animal causes, which is something that could take up an entire other podcast. Betty White turned 96 in January, and her appearances on TV are a little less frequent. But the year 2020 will mark the beginning of Betty White's 10th decade in show business. If you don't think she'll make it, then you tell her. I don't bet against Betty White. Oh, another great day at the L.A. Zoo. <laughs> Will you turn that garbage off? It's smoking hot. You think you're so hot? Check out Betty's beat. I'm so hot. My name's David Inman. Thanks for coming to the potluck. See you later. Guess what? I'm so hot.